Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. You're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg. An alternative to speaking, you lead me to your photographs and drawings or to ours become yours in what your death has taken with you, which is us among the living in time. Other versions of the us have existed in time where you would trace over my lines or we we could write over our sentences together. Now we're holding on across the gap where language meets the edge of your materiality, your absence in the world, and we had fallen. Author and critic Anwood Crawford's new book-length essay, Cut and Pastes the Loss of a Friend, Anti-War Activism, German Expressionist Franz Marc, The Pacific Solution, Australian Colonialism, Poetry, Photographic Processes, Historical Documents, all overlapping and crashing into one another in an elliptical narrative that brings the reader back to relive a short life and early death and the historical tides that moved it and the writer, colliding them until they feel a part of the same narrative. Other versions of us have existed. Anwen joins me now to talk about her book and the craft behind it. Anwen Crawford, welcome to Backstory. Hi. Hi, Mel. Now, I have a great deal of respect for you as a cultural and particularly music critic. Describing music uh, without using meaningless words or sentiment or tripping over yourself uh, is obviously incredibly hard. I found myself doing that, uh, though, trying to describe your book. Uh, So I'm really interested in in talking about this essay. It sort of feels as if you were letting something out that's often bound by more conventional narrative writing, uh, sort of spiralling loose, and yet it's so tightly crafted. So I really want you to try and, if you can, explain that paradox of this book. Um, I don't think it's a paradox that something is tightly crafted but in an unconventional narrative form I mean for me the work is a fairly logical continuation and extension of a lot of work that I've done that's been perhaps outside of you know arts criticism and music writing scene making poetry art making so yeah that that kind of non linear narrative form is something I tend to use when I'm left to my own devices and I'm not (laughs) writing for magazines. (laughs) I do feel though, look, I I mean, I sort of for in in preparation for this interview and also because I just really love it, uh, went back to reread your um, 33 and a third, um, live through this uh, about Courtney Love and Hole and, uh, you know, I, I really felt as though there was a real, you know, th- this does feel, this book that you've written does feel like the apotheosis of your craft. Um, you already write in this kind of a style. You you very much weave in all of the disparate elements that you gather. It's just that I think that a, as a general rule you're more contained by, as you say, these kind of conventional expectations. In a book-length um, essay you've obviously had the opportunity to sort of wind that around in a way that you 
you know, is obviously something that you enjoy crafting. I am interested, though, in, in this particular book because it does feel like um, reading it, I kind of felt like this was something that would have spoken to me, certainly as a younger person. Um, it speaks to me now. Um, I found myself sort of, uh, you know, I've had a great grief in my life that, you know, this book sort of really did feel like um, it travels on that sort of, that level, that emotive level at the same time as kind of um, really pulling together these quite, you know, strongly curated elements. So can you talk about how you, how you gathered the material for this book and then how you set that aside to craft it? Um, again, I don't think the two things are in kind of, um, what would the word be, contradistinction to each other in terms of the making of it was the thing, you know. It was not a book that I ever wrote a proposal for or an outline or anything like that. And thank God for publishers like Giramondo that are willing to take a chance on <laughs> that kind of work. Um, you know, I mean, the book took almost four years and I never knew until it was done like last October whether it was going to work on it like I didn't I didn't I didn't know what it was going to be until it was finished in a sense you know the the making of it was the point of it in a sense because I think that that's what an elegy is to a large degree the book is an elegy for a very close friend of mine and artistic collaborator we met when we were at art school in our late teens which was in the early 2000s and we were also very involved in activism um, at the time around, particularly around things like um, Australian border policies um, and then the Iraq war. Those were pretty formative political experiences in our youth. So in terms of putting the material together, I guess I really wanted to honour the way that we work together and the way that we conceived ourselves in the world as a as a kind of partnership, a collaborative partnership, which was that we always wanted our art making, most of which was on the street. My friend had come from a graffiti background. He was a graffiti artist as a teenager. So we did a lot of work out on the street kind of guerrilla art making and it was that sense of I guess always wanting to reach out into the world so although the work is very personal obviously I didn't want it to be interior in the sense of looking inwards I, I really wanted it to be a work that looked outwards and um, kind of moved across different periods of time and I guess the organizing logic is a kind of, um, well, it's a poetic logic of uh, resonance in terms of images and themes and sound. Um, I did my master's degree in poetry, and so in a sense the work is designed to be read aloud. I tend to think of it as a book look, as a book-length poem rather than an essay. If you call something poetry, though, no one ever reads it. So, um. 
I really agree as a reader that that's what I felt I was reading. You, yes. You've definitely got, you've got a refrain that, that returns as well. Um, Lots of refrains. Many yeah. refrains. It's kind of song-like, yeah. yeah. I mean, in a way, that's what I wanted. And the fact that I have a sort of day job as a music critic is, in a sense, no coincidence because, um, yeah, the, the, the sonics... Really matter to me. I write everything that I write by reading it aloud as I go. So the kind of precision of rhythm, of rhyme, half rhyme, assonance, all those poetic techniques are, are, are there. Are there for me? And in a sense, the book is an address because um, certainly the parts that are about my friend and and the work we did are written. In the second person, he's never named in the book. He's he's a you. But there are other yous in the book, and and so yeah, the the whole book is kind of an address in a sense. And I wanted to have a sense that there were lots of voices speaking in it because there's a lot of appropriated text as well, mm. which is unmarked. So yeah, I kind of wanted that sense that a voice kind of keeps shifting around. And it's not just my voice in a narrow sense. You're going to get, I mean, this is a, not a work of nonfiction, but I guess that Lincoln in the Bardo sort of, um, you know, mess and mash of like, of things, disparate elements, voices kind of really does typify this. I I wanted to read, there's a particular section that, that really struck me. And of course, I'm probably going to lose it now. Oh, here it is. Um, if I invoke the goats of Redress's past, it is because goats, the ghosts. Did I say goats? Jeez. If I invoke <laughs> the ghosts of Redress's past, it is because I find myself afflicted by the sadness of thinking. It is too late to remember now the future and not wanting to surrender to believing this. I, I felt this is a, the time that you write about is a time that I also was probably of a similar age and, you know, in involved in similar kind of activism, if not the art side of things. Um, and I really did feel this quite keenly. There's, you know, you've got um, an incredible ability to sort of pierce through to a feeling of being in that time in, in this work. And I really felt that passage because I feel like the that time has such a bearing on this. Um, and it, mm. and it, reading this book, uh, it... It, you really did manage to to invoke that idea that we are constantly coming back to these past um, things that occur, um, that, that always this is time, that we are coming back to versions of ourselves. Uh, can, were you, is this where it started? Because I am interested in what, in why that time, why are you writing about that time and this person and these experiences now? Well, because it's the time that we were at art school together so all those things were bound together. Yes, um, but, but why this? Why this book? Why this moment in your life? Um, and why? Why is this the subject matter that you chose to draw on? Because it was the only way I had to try and finish our work together. You know, um, my friend died ten years ago when he was thirty. Uh, he was someone who had cystic fibrosis, but he also got cancer, which is something I explained to some degree in the book. Um, so his death was quite um, quick and unexpected, even for someone who had a serious degenerative illness to begin with. Um, yeah, so 
like all allergies, it's a kind of compensatory labour. <laughs> you know, it's trying to make up for an absence that can't be, well, can't be made up for. I mean, all allergies in that sense are a failure by definition because you can't bring the person back. Um, but yeah, it was it was for me. You know, it's not a. There's no closure about it because these kind of things never end. Not only does bereavement never end, but the political questions of the book to do with, you know, uh, borders, um, colonialism, as you mentioned before, the kind of deeper question of who is grieved, who is grievable, to kind of echo Judith Butler. You know, none of these are questions that I can resolve on my own. <laughs> and you do you meditate on the failures of language as well. In fact, the, well, the name course, of the book, yeah. No Document Can Make You Manifest. Uh, and, you know, you, as, as you write in the piece I think I opened with as well, it's where language meets the edge of your materiality, your absence in mm. the world. Um, you can't cross that with language. You can only, you know, no. try to reach it somehow. And I think I felt this incredibly keenly. I think anyone who's lost anyone would feel the failures of any kind of language to approach it language yeah yes for sure yeah that's right that's right and you know I remember kind of immediately after he died I kind of read a whole bunch of books written by people you know about various bereavements including all the kind of usual suspects like Joan Didion's Year of Magical Thinking and Patti Smith's Just Kids um and those, those those are striking books, but a lot of the book the books that I read around those experiences struck me as a kind of lie on the level of narrative form, in that they all did take a kind of more or less narrative approach, like a kind of linear narrative, like this is what happened. Now I'm going to go back and narrate it and kind of tell you the story. And I, I've I've always resisted that. You know, I mean, one other experience that I touch on in the book is, you know, a kind of hospitalization I had in my late teens, uh, psychiatric hospitalization. And that, again, is a kind of experience that I remember feeling very acutely at the time that I had no language, you know, and I think anyone who's ever been in that situation of kind of acute mental distress, whether it's bereavement or something else, you do reach a point where language fails. So... Even as a writer, I've never had a kind of, or not for a long time, not since I was a teenager, have I had a relationship with language where I kind of trust it to go where I need it to go, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I feel like, I feel like I, I, I'm always negotiating the limits of what language can do. You, you keep know, trying to those... pin it down, though, don't you? Because, uh, you know, there are moments when you go back and look at the... the um, like the etymology of words and, and try to, you know, try to, pl like, say what they say. What do they say? There's a moment mm -hmm. when you talk about, I think, the word silver. Was it silver? Mm -hmm. And you're trying to sort of say, if you you know, if if it didn't exist as a word with the attached meaning, where would it go? And there's this, this kind of playing around with it, the, you know, the, the inadequacy of language and, you know, and also the enormous um, power of language to create meaning um, and the fact that you have long been obsessed with that um, as many of us 
obviously are. But it is that interesting thing. I've thought a lot about this, particularly, for example, with how we now use uh, non-gendered pronouns. I think that mm-hmm. that does reverse engineer your brain. It does. It is like a meditation on how we have thought about the world, how we've constructed it, and forces us to reconstruct it in a new frame. Uh, I think that that people that have that fear change in language have real reason to fear it. It does change how we think. It does. Does it, it allows us to express something that we never had a language to express before and by virtue of that we question what came before it, the world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, language constitutes meaning. It's not a way to meaning. It is meaning. It is for, for those who have language of whatever kind, it is the way through which we order meaning and our experience in the world and you know maybe that's something that people who read and write poetry tend to be a bit more conscious of than I mean I'm generalizing massively here but you know this gets back to my point about like linear narrative it's like I want the form of the thing to register the fact that language is meaning in itself you know I don't want I don't want to sense that the meaning of the thing can be constituted apart from the way in which it's written. The two things are the same. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. The ideal of the precise sentence, the struggle against sentimentality on the page while knowing myself to be thoroughly sentimental and the question of how we exist inside history, how we experience history and how we live and create history as a thing quite different from the abstraction of history, as a roll call of great men and great events. These are the things I return to as a writer. Uh, That's a quote um, from Anwyn Crawford uh, talking to Riding New South Wales. And when I really do want to talk about this the idea of the struggle against sentimentality, something that you've spoken about uh, in interviews uh, and that I know is something that that writers do strive for. But I want to talk about why is it that sentimentality is something to to try to avoid in writing and why is it that... uh, And how is it that you manage to achieve a sense of sort of lyricism without it? I think the best definition of sentimentality I've ever come across was in... Actually, Carl Wilson's 33 and a third book on Celine Dion, and it wasn't his definition. He was quoting someone else, and I can't for the life of me remember who it was. Um, but, you know, he, he Carl Wilson uh, uses it in his kind of discussion of Celine Dion, who, of course, is exactly one of those artists who's often uh, described as sentimental or schmaltzy. Um, you know, and, and he says via this person he's quoting, um, that, you know, sentimentality occurs when we give to a thing uh, more importance than God gave it, which I I really love as a, yeah, as a definition. And, you know, whether or not one believes in God per se, I think it gets to the heart of that thing of, uh, you know, no matter one's troubles or passions or whatever, I think part of you or part of me as a writer needs to take quite a cold kind of aerial view of proceedings and remind myself of the fact that you're kind of, you know, a speck on a ball in a, a, you know, a ball that's kind of hurtling through space. Like really at the end of the day, 
nothing that you do matters, which I find funny. I mean, I think I have a kind of fairly bleakly, you know, bleak humour. Um, so, so yeah. So I guess I guess in some sense it comes down to not taking yourself entirely seriously, even if you are talking about serious things. You know, you, I still need to kind of pull back and remind myself that. That in the end, yeah, to not to not give more importance to the thing than God than God than God has granted it. It's a, it's a, it's a great one. I, I did, yeah. It's interesting that you use the term schmaltzy because I, anyone who's seen a jar of you know schmaltz like that, you know, it's it's fat. Like basically, yeah, just that's right. you're yeah. overindulging. There's this sense of overindulgence, overindulgence. Yeah. Um, and you know, like really in, enjoyable, almost overindulgence in, exactly. in leaning yeah, too right. much into something, which I mean yeah. can be. I think there's a real reason why those over-the-top schmaltzy, um, you know, love lost love kind of anthems are so effective because you do really want to indulge in the emotion of it. You want to lean oh, into sure. that. Yeah, sometimes you just want a kind of, a, you know, a weepy or whatever, whether it's in song or film or whatever. I, I, I don't think it's indefensible by any means. Um, you know, it's a, it's a valid category of, uh, you know, a valid register of tone or, or whatever. Um, and, you know, I think part of the reason I'm so ruthless about it myself is that, you know, I probably am, or I know I am to some degree a sentimental person in terms of my own, in you know, internal thoughts. Like, you know, yeah, I I... I am, I am emotional, but I, in terms of what I do on the page, I very much believe in kind of being, controlling that quite strictly. I think about this with your writing now, especially knowing uh, more that I guess your your real kind of uh, approach to craft has been poetry, and it makes a lot mm. of sense. That is such a demanding, it's a demanding craft that often wrongly gets typified as somehow sentimental because mm. people are it's about feelings. Right. It, but but the demand of the, the craft of it is to pair back, pair back, pair back. And I mm. think it does make more sense thinking about that in terms of how you write, because it is at one incredibly paired back but to the essence of that of that feeling um, which is why I think it really cuts through it gives you a feeling um, because you are allowing that to to come to the reader without larding it <laughs> too much. Sure yeah that's well it's partly about compression and it's also about this thing I was talking about before of, of the fact that language and meaning are not separate from each other you know the, the meaning the meaning of a work is in the language and that means you know, and when I say language, I mean not just vocabulary, but kind of rhythm, syntax, all of those things. So I think, yeah, both in criticism and in other work I do, it's it's about uh, again, it's about precision, um, and it's about um, it's about trying to evoke or create a feeling or an atmosphere without without telling the reader in so many words what that is, you know what I mean? I don't have to, you don't have to say this song makes me sad. I mean, maybe sometimes you do, but, you know, there, there, are, there, are, there are ways to generate that meaning or that feeling in the text without, without having to be literal about it, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to particularly talk about how you've applied this to, to music criticism because um, as an editor, I've certainly edited pieces of music criticism. I do not pretend to be someone who can write them. <laughs> I think they're an enormously difficult craft because people get so wound up in in this really difficult thing, which is how do you explain music? Mm. And I think you, more than anyone I've read, really managed to do that without tripping over yourself. I 
I was. Um, I remember years ago, years ago now, reading a, a piece of criticism you did on Gold Class, and I read mm. over it and over it because I'm like, how are you doing this? You are actually giving the feeling of listening to this music uh, without mm-hmm. me feeling like I'm, you know, just there's too many adverbs or adjectives spoiling my enjoyment of it. Mm-hmm. How do how do you approach writing this type of criticism? You just gave the answer. Not too many adverbs and not too many adjectives. (laughs) It sounds so easy when you say it. One one must declare war on adverbs. That's that's one of my rules. Um, Yeah, no, no, it's actually true. Like at at the at the nuts and bolts level of craft, um, and I mean, you know, this is this is this is the kind of classic. This is the reason why music writing gets such a bad rap. You know, out of of all the forms of of kind of criticism, you know, popular music criticism is is considered the the least, um, you know, the least worthy, and and it's it's largely because you know uh, it tends to be the form that people write in first. Certainly, the form that I wrote in first, but you know, I made the mistake of never leaving, um, and you know, so it's it's a form that's subject to a lot of the mistakes that beginner writers make, and the one mistake that beginner writers make over and over again, myself included, and thank God, like, the first 10 years or so of my work was not only largely offline, but also pseudonymous, so, you know, um, I got to make a lot of mistakes that um, no one can trace back to me now. <laughs> um, it's overwriting like overwriting of course is the classic mistake of, of, of beginner yeah. writers you know so it's it's learning not to overwrite it's learning to yeah take take the light away um yeah it does seem yeah. particular though to uh to music writing and I think I've tried I've tried it um and you know I've written pieces of, of music criticism I would say they're dreadful but um actually trying to describe what it is what it is like to listen to a piece of music because it is an act that does necessarily evoke emotion. Uh, I think it is, um, you know, these music and dance are particularly, um, in, you know, language came later. These are not, uh, or, you know, the, the act of writing language, I should say, uh, wasn't something that was married to these maybe um, more connected forms of expression. And so mm. I think it is a really difficult thing. And I do wonder if it's connected with, you know, some of the the ideas that you evoke in your book, which is that, um, you know, that language, we haven't found language for that necessarily. And, and how do you do that? I feel like mm. your, your work sometime is an act of mining for the ability to describe uh, music and, and why it works or doesn't work for you as a listener. Mm, yeah, and in some sense, again, you know, this this notion of kind of um, trying to uh, demonstrate the, the meaning in in the, the language itself. In some sense, it's an Im- like music criticism is an imitative craft because I mean, at least I think that some, some often what I'm trying to do is 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 to somehow in language, yeah, Im- imitate or echo the the sense of the music. And again, so this is choices that you might make about tone, rhythm, um, syntax, all those kind of things. Because yeah, which means that you, you know, there's there's no there's no one approach that I take to every piece because it it it, it partly depends on the a lot depends on the kind of musicality that you're trying to invoke, you know, um, because you want, or at least I want, 
some of that to come through in in the language, if possible, in the criticism. Yeah. So what, I mean, I guess it's sort of, I, th- I think about, um, you know, maybe a, uh, a professional bike rider, um, you know, who's younger and, and who's unafraid of like, going down a a massive hill at like ridiculous kilometres per hour on this skinny, tiny little bit of of rubber, you have to kind of have a somewhat unknowing um, or, you know, maybe your brain hasn't evolved to the point where you're like, this is literally me trying to kill myself. Um, I feel like that may be approaching writing. You have to have a sense of that. Like you've got to, you've got to throw yourself down the hill on the tiny bit of rubber and, um, you know, take the chance to do it. Um, how do you hold on to that um, if you are maybe embarking on, on writing and you're more of a cautious persona um, and you are this, you know, because the, the self-criticism that you, that really makes you the writer that you are is also something that stops people from putting stuff out there. How, mm. how do you do that? How do you balance those two things? I mean, I guess maybe this gets back to what I was saying before about No Document, which is that it, it's a book that, like, making it was the thing, right? You know, none of it was planned in advance. Um, and I'm the same with everything, really. It's very rare that I plan any kind of piece that I'm going to write, like, write, you know, write out a plan for it. Um, because for me, yes, I mean, the, 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 again, the, the writing and the thinking are simultaneous in that sense. You know, I, if, I, if I knew what I thought, I wouldn't write. You know, I have to, I have to write it. I, and I think a lot of writers are like this. I have, to, I have to write it to figure out what I think, you know. And for me, all the most engaging things to work on including no document and some pieces of criticism I do are when I kind of manage to surprise myself along the way because it's not until you put the thing down on the page that that's when I'm like oh that's that's what I think you know you know the thought and the writing are kind of born simultaneously yeah and especially with essays I mean this is why I love the essay form right is because it's an the very purpose of an essay, at least in my mind, is to try and capture a kind of train of thought that the writer and, and you know, your job as a writer is to some degree to try and let the reader on on your on your thinking and not just your thinking but how you think, you know, your actual kind of tempo and rhythm and, and kind of progression of thought. Yeah, so to me the idea of writing an essay to which I kind of already know the solution, so to speak, you know, that I already know how it's going to end is kind of anathema, you know, and I think when I have made the mistake of doing that, it's just kind of dead on the page, right, because it's not it's not an essay in a proper sense then because you're not, you're not really chasing your thought, um, you know, you're putting down something that's already, that you've already kind of figured out. Maybe that's one of the constitutive differences between essays and opinion columns, opinion columns being a form that I loathe and despise. Um, because an opinion, you know, an opinion columnist is never surprised by their own thinking. And you as a reader are never surprised by the end of it. You know, you haven't gone anywhere. And I think what is meaningful about an essay is that mm. both as a writer and a reader, it's a form that takes you somewhere. It's meant to move, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it transcends the thing that, you know, that it is that it, it begins with uh, or, yeah. it, or it returns to it or it sees it from a different light. I, th- I found this particularly, you know, there are moments in um, Live Through This, your, your work on um, 
Courtney Love, the 33 and a half book. On whole, rather, yes. Um, whole is a band. Whole is a band. Whole is a whole band. You're absolutely correct, of course. Um, thank you. I feel like you, you own that, you know, you were not a fan girl of this band necessarily. In fact, you had two albums um, when mm. you embarked on, you know, mm-hmm. you know, that's your, that was what was significant to you. And I thought that was a really interesting approach because it's totally um, undercutting this whole idea of the critic as the expert. Uh, you're not trying to be an expert. You're trying to approach it, a subject that interests you uh, and you're trying to see it in a different way and learn more about it. Uh, that's what is interesting about that essay. It is interesting to people who have zero interest in whole or anything around it because it, mm. it actually roves beyond that and in fact engages you with someone's someone trying to learn about something yeah yeah I think I think the the most uh, yeah gratifying feedback I've had over time about that book is exactly that from people who didn't care about whole or Courtney Love or didn't know anything about them but still found the book interesting and certainly that's true as, of my experience as a reader of those 33 and a third books it tends to be the the albums or the artists that I know least about or care least about where the books prove the most interesting. You know, albums that I have some great personal investment in, I find myself reading the thing going, that's not what I think, you know, or, <laughs> or I would have done it differently or that that kind of thing, which is the danger of, of, of sometimes of, yeah, reading about things that are too... Um, too close to you and also perhaps writing about things that are too close to you I mean yeah in a sense I lived through this as an album that obviously means a lot to me but it was really the only whole album that meant a lot to me so I felt like I could um maybe yeah take a slightly distanced view of it um but really my key motivation for that book was the fact that I felt as if it was an album that in fact mattered to a lot of people and that uh, it had kind of never been given its due in that regard. It just got too swept up in the circus of uh, Kurt and Courtney. Um, yeah, for the kind of legacy of the record to really have been properly considered. Well, uh, on that note, I've just realised that time has flown um, <laughs> and I, I'm sure I still have plenty I want to talk to you about. But Anwin Crawford, I have taken up so much of your time already and it is greatly appreciated. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today on Backstory. Thanks so much, Mel. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.